This is hell. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. And is there anything that is causing greater grief in our world today than the horrible suffering happening in Gaza at this very moment? That's a rhetorical question, and you don't have to answer. However, in a weird way, I'm hoping that there is nothing worse happening in the world than what is taking place in Gaza today, because something worse is hard to imagine. And if there is something worse that we don't know about, I mean, that's even more frightening. Of course, not knowing about what's happening in the world shouldn't be a surprise for us here in the United States or anyone who consumes Western establishment media. Sure, over the past 30 years, the privatization of journalism in the United States, its corporate conglomeration and its destruction by private equity and all the machinations of capitalism that are anathema to free speech or free anything, all of that, including the U.S. press closing its vast majority of foreign press bureaus, so we have no idea of what's going on overseas, which explains a lot of why we were not prepared for anything like 9-11. All of that has Americans and most of the people in the West even more ignorant of the rest of the world than we already were. Case in point, what we will be talking about today, and that's not only the Gaza war, which we are relatively uninformed about, especially its context, but how Yemen and the Houthi fit into this potentially apocalyptic mess. Things got even more complicated in the now regional conflict this past weekend when three U.S. service members were killed in a drone attack on a Jordanian defense position where approximately 350 U.S. troops are currently based. Troops in a base most Americans were completely clueless about until the attack. The Biden administration has now blamed that attack on Kataib Hezbollah, or the Hezbollah Brigades, an Iraqi Shiite paramilitary group which fought the U.S. during the Iraqi war and has also seen action in the Syrian civil war. Kataib Hezbollah, Hezbollah Brigades has said they will now suspend all attacks on U.S. forces to spare Iraq from any counterattack by the United States, as they are based in Iraq. They have also insisted that Iran has nothing to do with their command and control and knows nothing about their actions. Meanwhile, the Houthi in Yemen are attacking Israeli ports and Red Sea shipping in an attempt to support the people of Gaza by stopping supplies from getting into Israel, supplies that could be used in the war on Gaza. With all that happening and the U.S. and Israel insisting that Iran is being is behind arming both the Houthi and Hezbollah, if not giving them their marching orders, stuff that there's no evidence to back up, and President Biden being urged by so many to give a strong response, whatever that is, to the attack in Jordan, the whole thing could get unbelievably worse, and it could get far worse far sooner than any of us hope or think. Today, we will be tinkering with our very own end-of-the-world clock when we speak with journalist and writer primarily focused on the politics of the Middle East, Seamus Malakafzali. I knew I was going to get that wrong. Malakafzali. Malakafzali. I, pra- I practice it over and over again. Malakafzali. Seamus Malakafzali. <sighs> I apologize, Seamus. Who uh, posted the Baffler magazine article, More Fog, More War, The Brutal Logic of the U.S. Attacks on Yemen. Find out more about Seamus as well as all of his writing at his website, Seamus 
malakafzeli.com. That's Seamus dash M A L E K A F Z A L I.com, where you can also support his work by subscribing to his Substack, and I strongly suggest you do, as Seamus explains at his website. Journalism about the Middle East and the global South as a whole, as many will tell you, is oftentimes influenced by government money, corporate interference, or is simply hidden behind a language barrier that isn't surmounted. This substack will endeavor to bring news and analysis from the Middle East to you, the reader, that is free of compromising outside interests in the English language and will hopefully help you be informed about the intricacies and complexities of the region. You can follow Seamus on X at Seamus underscore Malik, M-A-L-E-K. Producing today's show is Rebecca Ridenauer. Ridenauer. <laughs> Becca, anything new in your world? Mm, new. No, no, nothing. No, just, just the... the well, maybe, maybe a better outlook. I don't know. Th- things are, things are paused in my life. So <laughs> why are things paused in your life? I don't have a job. I've been mm. unemployed for a while, and uh, yeah, I've just been kind of waiting at and the looking phone, around, looking around, showing up places, being told don't work there. Uh, I work in the service industry, so it's rife with uh, gossip and bad behavior. <laughs> Ask uh, Pete. Pete. Yeah. Yeah. He, oh, he always has connections for you. People are always telling him that Great. they got work. Not, nothing like on air job. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we'll edit this all out for later. <laughs> so I know I should not complain, but this is hell after all. But being satisfied with a life lived in a world where the only solace we get is by saying, well, it could have been worse, is some cold comfort, parting consolation prize on your deathbed. In countless places around the world, people live in much worse living conditions than I do, than you do. There are people facing much greater challenges than I am today, or you are. But there are also people who are so much better off than I am, than you are. I cannot even imagine what their lives on this planet are like. Their lives are inconceivable to me. As inconceivable as the lives of those who suffer far more than I ever have. So, should I complain because of the inequality I see at the top, or should I stay silent because my problems are minuscule compared to those of others who are in far worse living conditions? Should I shut up because my complaints are from a place of relative privilege? After all, I am a white dude. Or should I speak out because I am blind and I am broke? It's a question I've asked myself a lot while the guest is waiting to be interviewed because like the people of Yemen and Gaza, who we will be discussing in a moment, I live in relative bliss, despite being blind and broke. It's something I need to remind myself of every day, because as we will be talking about shortly, the freedom of the press in the United States is now freely being used to ignore much of the impact of U.S. foreign policy around the world, leading many of us to think our insignificant little problems are actually important when they are not. Becca, more important than my need to remind myself that even if this is hell, this hell's a lot worse for a lot of people than me. What is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? All right. As posted on our Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page by listener Jen D., question is, which mega-rich person would you eat first? <laughs> which mega-rich person would you eat first? It's a great question from hell. Uh, yesterday's guest, Kat Bohannon, has actually sent us an audio 
clip, an audio file of her response to this week's question from Helen. We will be playing that at the end of tomorrow's show. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer at our Facebook page or message it to us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio or at our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hell Hole. And if you are not a member, you should join. Or you can tweet it at us via x at thisishellradio or you can post it in our Discord community or... You can leave your answer at our Patreon page if you are a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell, and I hope you are. Patreon patrons, in fact, get first crack at the question from hell as we share it during the weekly exclusive Patreon podcast, which this week will again go live on Friday morning at 10 a.m. Central Time, Central Standard Time, here in Chicago, not in its usual Thursday morning time slot. Coming up, we'll try to figure out what role Yemen and the Houthi play in the Gaza War. Becca will share your answers to this week's question from hell as posted at our Facebook group page. Welcome to the hell hole. Jeff Dorchin will deliver a moment of truth. Becca, what's Jeff talking about during this week's moment of truth? All right. Jeff ratiates on the rapid rise in our irrationalization. I cannot believe that both you and Will pronounced that correctly because I could not. Well, Google pronunciation helped me this morning. Oh, really? You see? <laughs> And, and Alec Zali too. Really? Oh, yeah, we've been practicing. Oh, sweet. And Becca will also uh, share who our final guest is this week and what else will be happening on tomorrow's show. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. And the abyss we are staring into today, potentially an even worse, much more expanded regional war in the Middle East with U.S. and Western establishment media yet again doing a poor job of covering the ongoing and decades-long suffering of Gazans as well as Palestinians in the West Bank, and Israeli military and government control of Western media access to Gaza, plus the current demand for President Biden to take a strong stand in response to the three U.S. service members being killed in the Jordanian military base drone attack, the current war becoming even more dreadful is a real, real possibility. Here to hopefully give us a better understanding of the conflict in the Middle East as it stands right now and where it may be going. Journalist and writer primarily focused on the politics of the Middle East, Seamus, Seamus Malakavzeli is our guest. He posted the Baffler Magazine article, More Fog, More War, The Brutal Illogic of the U.S. Attacks on Yemen. You can find out more about Seamus as well as all of his writing at his website, SeamusMalekafzeli.com. That's Seamus, M-A-L-E-K-A-F-Z-A-L-I, Seamus, dash malakafzeli.com where you can also support his work by subscribing to his Substack, and I hope you do because his work is exceptional. Welcome to This Is Hell, Seamus. Good morning. Can I be heard all right? Uh, yeah, I can hear you pretty good. We'll see how this keeps going from here on out. Uh, great having you on the show. This is exceptional writing, and I really appreciate the fact that you can give us a perspective that we are not, and you know this, we are not hearing in the West, but not only that, but specifically here in the United States. You write, you begin your writing by stating that at 2.30 a.m. Sana'a time, that's the Yemen's capital, shock and awe came to Yemen's shores. The United States, with the assistance of the United, United Kingdom, dropping more than one quote-unquote, precision-guided bombs across the northwestern part of Yemen on what officials purported to be key nodes in the military network belonging to the government led by the Houthi 
movement. Now, only a few weeks after the attack by Hamas, we spoke with the scholar of surveillance and digital rights in Israel and Palestine, Sophia Goodfriend, on her Baffler article, Blunt Force, Precision Warfare Does Not Exist, in that article, obviously, on the uh, war in Gaza. And Sophia made the point that while the bombs may be precision guided, that does not mean they are used precisely. We had a conversation in late November with The Intercept's Nick Terse on the exact same issue when it came to the U.S. use of precision drones in Somalia during the first few months of the Trump administration. While the weaponry may be sophisticated and precise, that does not mean the policies that control drone pilots or the practices of those pilots are precise. When it comes to the use of precision weaponry by the United States against the Houthi in Yemen, how precise are they? Is the U.S. targeting only military installations, and is that what they are striking? I mean, at the moment, there have been no reported civilian casualties, but the issue is is that the U.S. in Yemen, uh, when it came to the Saudi-led war uh, intervention, uh, when they were supplying the missiles to Saudi Arabia, they obviously had no, um, you know, uh, misgivings about sending them all the missiles that they wanted to strike. What they also said were only military targets, but were oftentimes uh, civilian uh, targets. Um, at the moment, they have only hit military bases, um, oftentimes the same military bases over and over again. Uh, I think at the moment, they are not really uh degrading the military infrastructure of the houthi movement much at all i think it's more trying to send a message but my major fear is that as the scale of these strikes expand and the war between uh the yemenis and the americans and the british uh grows and grows in scale as well that they're going to move out of hitting the same targets over and over again and they're going to attempt to uh, hit places that are further into uh, Sana'a proper, uh, further into Yemeni cities. And when they are trying to create these huge fireballs, these huge uh, munitions cookoffs, that Yemenis are going to get caught uh, in that crossfire. So far, um, I believe around nine or 10 Yemeni soldiers have been killed uh, in the Yemeni armed forces that uh, the Houthi-led government controls. Um, but I, that's also sure to grow as well. So in coverage of the recent drone attack in Jordan that killed three U.S. service members, new reports were quick to point out that the attack happened at night. The implication being that somehow made the attack more nefarious, more evil, wicked, or even criminal. How common is it for such attacks by any side in the conflict to launch missile, drone, or even bombing or any kind of military action at night. After all, Afghans and Iraqis did raise their voices about U.S. nighttime raids of family homes as they looked for so-called terror suspects. So what does it say to you about U.S. media coverage when they are specific to point out night attacks against the U.S., but not so quick to tell audience the U.S. raids happen at night as well? There's kind of, I mean, this is emblematic of, like, as you're talking about, a, a larger issue wherein the groups that are resisting American occupation, or at the very least fighting uh, American occupation, they're not given, they're they're somehow both um, told to rise above the level that every other military in the world is participating on. 
um, but also that they are are lower than dog dirt, that they are are insects, that there is nothing that they won't stoop to. So the idea of using the cover of night of um, in, in the case of the strike uh, on Jordan in particular, um, the strategy that they used was that a drone that was coming back into base that had already been used, the drone that was coming from uh, Iraq came in at the exact same time, presumably because it wanted to use that cover in order to attack uh, that base. Um, the idea, the, 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 the fact that that drone was even over a different country in the first place as an, as a, uh, an appendage of America, uh, that's, it's so common that it's not an issue it's not even thought of about why are there American soldiers that are stationed in Jordan? Why are there American soldiers still in Iraq after the parliament uh, voted them out? Uh, why are the U.S. soldiers uh, still stationed in Syria? Uh, none of that is in question. The only thing that is in question is why is an Iraqi militia uh, fighting against that? that? That's the thing that is put into question. Uh, it's a strange thing. I understand why it happens, but it's still a, a strange thing, uh, especially to to witness now. You write that American airstrikes in Syria and Iraq have become so common as to become almost unremarkable, eliciting only the occasional news story. Now, what the, this reminds me of is the constant bombing that was happening in the no-fly zones during the sanctions upon Iraq throughout the 90s. These bombings were happening nearly every day, often every other day, and they were not getting any press here in the United States whatsoever. What does the public miss when they do not know the degree to which the U.S. is regularly bombing Syria or Iraq or any country? It, it goes back to what you were mentioning further about uh, precision guided, that language. I think we're used to in the American media when news of the missiles, missile strikes come in, particular ones. Frequently, there are assassinations of uh, certain military leaders, militia leaders, um, or it's when they're so botched that the media uh, can't not pay attention to them. But that's rare. Um, the idea is to make it so the picture of the war that is being fought is one that is uh, moral, that it is uh, strategic in the you know vaguest possible sense of that word. Um, if people understood, I mean, in particular the the how the military presence of the U.S. Army in Jordan, if people knew how expansive it was, how regular the bombing was how little was being achieved in all of it, there would be far more questions about the current American plan in the Middle East than currently exist. Uh, Israel and the United States both have the same uh, modus operandi here in that you know military occupation, constant endless warfare, that can all be made perpetual if the average citizen uh, has no conception of it, really. It doesn't affect their daily lives. And for Americans, the fact that U.S. soldiers were in Iraq, Syria, and Jordan was of no effect to them at all. They probably didn't even know that we had soldiers in Syria or Jordan to begin with. Um, once that is made known, 
and suddenly we're threatening an almost uh, 9-11 level retaliation for three U.S. soldiers being killed, um, that that is something that is very outside uh, the norm. And, and the reaction to it uh, reflects the, the short-sightedness of the strategy. You mentioned how little is being achieved by this type of bombing in a supposedly, right, a war on terror. Why don't military solutions, why doesn't massive bombardment win a war on terror? I mean, well, I, I, I hate to go back to um, Ron Paul because I don't think either of us like Ron Paul. <laughs> but uh, I like whenever anybody mentions yeah. Ron Paul, they always have the uh, qualifier of, I hate to go back to Ron Paul. <laughs> I mean, he, he made one good point in his whole life, and I, I want to just mention it. Uh, back in 2008, uh, when he was uh, running for president, or, or 2012, um, there was a video that was put out by his campaign uh, where he made a speech in which, okay, like let's say that uh, if China uh, occupied Texas, like wouldn't we expect there to be like extensive military resistance on all fronts to this thing, regardless of, of political ideology. Um, and he was making this about Iraq specifically, like this was an understandable response and retaliation to the military campaign that we are undertaking. Um, when you are faced with the idea that a foreign nation, the world's lone superpower, unchallenged, unchecked, has been occupying your country for more than 20 years now. Um, the U.S. officially left in uh, you know late 2000s, but troops stayed uh, after the uh, anti-ISIS campaign. And when, again, when Iraq voted with its parliament to expel them, not only did the U.S. refuse, it threatened to seize all of their bank assets in the United States, which is a lot of money because Iraq was occupied uh, by the United States, military occupied, was made non-sovereign, essentially. Um, you know, what does that, what is the, what does that entail? Um, when you believe that you are fighting an occupation of your territory, when you believe now so more than ever that you are fighting uh, an enemy of humanity, which is at, which is aiding and abetting and supplying weapons to uh, a genocide of uh, your brethren in Gaza, in Palestine, um, are you not encouraged to, to keep fighting and to, and to continue uh, assaulting the Americans? Um, if you're a guerrilla fighter, as Kadeb, Hezbollah, or as uh, other militias in Iraq are, um, the criterion of victory is very different for you. If you're Israeli, if you're American, um, the public will not accept anything other than total victory. That's the language that keeps being used in Gaza in particular. Um, the longer that Hamas survives, the longer that these factions survive, um, the more of a headache it is for these for America and Israel who promise their total destruction. That's the that's the that's the threshold of victory they need to reach: total destruction of a militia, which is possible. Um, for the guerrilla fighter, for a militia. The criterion of victory, the threshold they need to pass, is just to keep fighting. And that can span a wide uh, scale, right? So they can take far more fighters dying than the Americans can. They can take uh, more of their weaponry being destroyed than the Americans can. 
um, they can withstand a lot because the the scale that they're on is very different. You also write that strikes in places like Somalia go virtually unmentioned. All of these are justified by the same reasons. Terrorism, threats to American bases, threats to allies. Uh, first, before I even get to the question that I've written, threats. I mean, how vague is that word? How vague is that employed when it comes to U.S. foreign policy reacting in a way that might be using a military strike, for instance? Because threats can be anything from just words to actual physical actions or, or preparations for a- actual physical actions. So how vague is it when the United States says we are trying to protect uh, ourselves from threats to American bases and threats to our allies? Uh, incredibly vague. More vague than I think even congressmen are, uh, certain congressmen are, are willing to entertain. Uh, and people remember when um, the IRGC commander Qasem Soleimani was assassinated in Iraq, the justification that was presented by the State Department was that Soleimani, as the as a leader in the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, was threatening attacks on Americans that were imminent. That's a big thing. That, that sounds very specific. Um, but when the intelligence was presented to members of Congress, uh, Mike Lee uh, from Utah, which is not a liberal state by any means, comes out to the press and says that essentially it's nonsense. We were given incredibly weak evidence for this strike. Uh, this is it's a, it's a dangerous thing. Um, the the threat that is being described is usually just the idea that it could be threatening at some point because of ideology. Um, So if you are someone from Iran, from the Iranian military apparatus, which is a country that is dedicated to opposing America uh, through its its government, um, therefore, you can just say, well, it could happen. I mean, they, they, they like doing that. And then you can strike up their military commanders. You can you can you know push the region to the brink of war just because you think that you need to make a statement about something that had happened earlier. Uh, in this case, it was um, uh, a protest at a, uh, a U.S. embassy in Baghdad, uh, which eventually became a, a kind of a siege. Um, the idea is that you work your way up from uh, the militias that backed it to Iran, and then I guess. Soleimani has to be involved, and I guess he's threatening now. So we got to take him off the face of the earth. Uh, this language is is kind of shelled out and shelled out until it becomes effectively meaningless. And when it comes to Soleimani, as we learned here on the show, his danger, the level that he was a threat to the United States, had been greatly exaggerated by anti-Iranian lobbyists in Washington, D.C., and kind of made him as an enemy du jour in order for the U.S. military industrial complex to target and to make a statement that they are actually doing something about the Revolutionary Guard. But in fact, he was not a very powerful person anymore within the Revolutionary Guard. So none of it really seemed to make sense. So to what extent are bombings of Syria, Iraq, Somalia due to, as the U.S. states, terrorism, threats to American bases, threats to allies, more than anything else, are these U.S. military strikes due to terrorism and threats to the U.S.? 
and its allies. Is that what this is about? I mean, we have to differentiate between uh, a threat to the U.S. and a threat to U.S. bases. Because when we use that sentence, threats to the U.S., the average American immediately goes to the idea of September 11th or, or something along those lines, like a, a terrorist attack on American soil. Uh, it's the same kind of thinking that engineers um, these kinds of frenzied calls that came out after the October 7th attacks. Uh, like, for example, in the UK, when uh, a radio caller, someone, someone called into a radio station and it was like, the paragliders over uh, Leeds were scaring her because she thought they were Hamas. Um, it, it's this sort of thing. I think these are threats to American military bases, but these are not American military bases which are like anywhere near the American homeland. They're in the countries that these militias are from and are operating in. Like the the... If, if they're if they're from the country and you've placed your bases in that country, uh, oftentimes without the permission of the governing authority or with very vague permission from the governing authority, um, the the threat that you are talking about, I, I feel like there's context that is missing from that that might, uh, you know, <laughs> it, it might explain why they're attacking. Uh, it, it, it's the same kind of discourse that informs why Israel talks about Gaza in the way that it does. The idea that Hamas is inherently anti-Semitic, that it's killing uh, Israelis because they, they hate Jews, that they're Nazis, they're worse than Nazis, they're worse than ISIS somehow. Uh, the the implication is that Hamas is a neighbor, that, that Gaza and Hamas, they're neighbors of Israel. They're, they're so, it's a sovereign state that is being governed by Hamas that is simply attacking Israel for no reason. That the military occupation of Palestine is not even uh, a fact. Uh, it, it doesn't factor into it at all. Um, it's an incredibly ignorant way of discussing it, knowingly uh, malicious on the part of those who propagate it. And then it misinforms people who are, who are genuinely trying to figure out what's happening. You write that the airstrikes in Yemen that began earlier this month and continue still were given a different justification. In response to Houthi attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea, the United States wished to protect the freedom of navigation, which I do not remember in the Constitution. Is the U.S. enforcing international law, a regionally agreed upon freedom to pass through the Red Sea, which connects Europe via the Mediterranean with Asia via the Gulf of Aden, Arabian Sea, Indian Ocean? Is the U.S. simply allowing agreed-upon trade to continue? Are the Houthi violating an international law that the United States is trying to enforce? I mean, I think especially now, we should we should dispense with the idea that the U.S. is invested in upholding international law. Uh, when the ICJ ruling came down from the International Court of Justice about Israel's complicity in propagating incitement to genocide, um, they did not call for a ceasefire. But even still, mere hours after they did that, they defunded the refugee organization UNRWA in Palestine and potentially endangers, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of, of people's lives. Uh, they deliberately undermined a refugee association in order to avoid 
the even the idea that international law should be upheld. So here, obviously, that's it's it's nonsense. Uh, they are being attacked, Yemen, because they dared to upset the natural balance of things as the U.S. sees it, because they wanted Israel to suffer any amount of economic damage for uh, propagating a genocide in Gaza. That's why this started. Um, once the knockdown effects of the of the uh, difficulties in trade were being felt, that's when the operation started. That's when I guess they started caring because uh, you know concerns about what a, a supply chain breakdown might mean for for Biden and for the election. But they know that this is about Gaza. They everything else is is very uh, wishy washy. Um, that's why the reasons that they that they put out are so weak. I mean, I mentioned in the article that one of the things that Biden said in his statement after the first attacks was that they wanted to protect shipping times because it might cause you know weeks of delays. That's not a strong reason to do anything. Uh, you are only saying that because you don't want to mention what the actual uh, reasoning was, um, because if you say what the exact reasoning was then you have to defend why you're doing something. And defending what is happening in Gaza is an increasingly difficult task for uh, State Department spokespeople, John Kirby especially. He's he's doing really poorly out there. Uh, Matthew Miller, uh, also Jake Sullivan. Um, they're, they're, they're not doing great. Um, that that is that is the thing. The, every, everything that they're mentioning here, uh, it's it's not true. No. Is the U.S. setting a precedent right now for possibly a real reason, a, a logical rationale for war being uh, an attack on anyone who interrupts globalization? That's a good question. I, my, my gut feeling, though it may be still informed by what the world was like per October 7th, was that the justifications for this are so toxic, so obviously um, malign. I mean, when they first announced this coalition, Operation Prosperity Guardian, which in of itself is an, is an absurd name uh, for an operation. Um, it sounds like a housing complex in Detroit. I'm not kidding you. <laughs> there used to be one called Paradise Gardens. And so oh it God. sounds like the exact same kind of thing. I'm sorry for interrupting. No, no, no. It's it's everybody. What are you saying? It's hollow. It's inherently hollow. And when many countries were announced as being part of this coalition, some of them kind of backed away. Some of them only sent very few troops to it. There was an understanding that being associated with this was bad news and could lead to some sort of blowback. Not militarily, but like you have to eventually answer for why you do things to your to your voters, uh, and and. The current war in Gaza is not it continuing without a ceasefire. That's not a popular proposition really anywhere that I can tell, other than Israel. Uh, America, Britain, even Germany, their populations are for a ceasefire, bipartisan. Um, no, I, I don't think my, I don't think it's going to set a precedent just because of what I just mentioned. But America alone, if it wants to go out on that, I think the gates of that have opened. 
doing it with international backing, that might be off the table, considering how things have narrowed down to just the US and the UK on this one. Um, but, you know, if I have to think of something that Trump might do in the White House, uh, could happen with Iran if they wanted to close the Strait of Hormuz. Um, but again, I think it's a very narrow window that they've had to that they would have to go through. But when it comes to the situation with Gaza, the situation with Israel, I mean, here in the United States, you were just talking about how, you know, eventually you have to answer to your voters. But do you here in the United States when it seems like Israel and this policy in Israel basically has bipartisan support and the only alternative to the mistakes that are being made by the Biden administration are potentially far worse mistakes to be made by another Trump administration. So can we vote this foreign policy out of office? That's, a, that's an excellent question, because uh, Biden himself will eventually have to answer for this. Um, you know, he, he's trying to he and his team are trying to run out the clock on this in that they're hoping that by November, this whole Gaza situation will be mostly over and out of the headlines. Uh, it's pretty much out of the headlines in the UK, at least from what people tell me. Um, but he wanted this over by Christmas. That obviously didn't happen. Uh, the Israelis keep announcing less and less intense operational phases, which are just as intense as the uh, the previous ones. Uh, media tries to imply that there's less and less death toll, which is not true. Uh, basically not true. Um, they want this off the table. It won't happen. Biden may very well lose this election uh, because of this, because of people staying home. But you're right. This particular foreign policy of backing Israel to the hilt, that is a bipartisan thing. That is not something that you can vote your way out of. Uh, America has doomed itself, essentially, to figuring out, you know, who's going to back Israel on this one. You're, you're essentially given the choice of like, okay, because I, I, I'm not sure, I should be clear just from my opinion, I'm not entirely sure what exactly the difference would be between Biden and Trump, at least on allowing Israel to do with it what it wants. But you have to choose between two things. One, you can either vote for a president who might put pressure on Israel sometime in the future uh, if things get so bad they think that you know a new Nuremberg trial might start up, um, but has been you know the most pro-Israel Democratic president certainly ever. Um, or you can vote for a guy who has backed Israel um, absolutely completely throughout his presidency, but through sheer force of being uh, a very suggestible idiot, might pull back from a few things. Uh, in the same way that he brought America to the brink of war with Iran after striking Soleimani, uh, but then was arguably the only force that was able to pull them out of it once Al-Assad Air Base was hit by ballistic missiles by the IRGC. Um, that is not a choice that, it, it, like, that's that's an insane choice that you have to make. Um, it, 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 it's, it's a horrifying uh, question. Because, you know, candidates that are are much better in Palestine, um, you know, Cornel West, uh, Claudia Dela Cruz, if we're talking about the PSL, you know, these people are not going anywhere near 
the presidency, obviously. Third party candidates might get one, two percent when they get on the debate stage. Uh, yeah, there, there's no there's no other there's no way out of this for the American voter, even though American voters, not their parties, American voters back a ceasefire in Gaza, Democratic, Republican, independent. And yet their politicians are almost uniformly against that, the most vocal ones, at the very least, the most powerful ones that it's it's a staggering democratic deficit and the war in gaza has just emphasized this uh, a thousandfold and, it, and it's maddening we are speaking with Seamus Malikovselli, who posted the Baffler Magazine article more fog more war the brutal illogic of the u.s attacks on yemen support Seamus's work by subscribing to his Substack at his website Seamus-Malikovzeli.com. That's M-A-L-E-K-A-F-Z-A-L-I. And follow him on X at Seamus underscore Malik. So, again, this is not something I'd written down before our conversation. I just wanted to follow up on what you were just saying. Why do you think there is so little difference between the two major parties here in the United States when it comes to foreign policy? Domestically, Sure, there are a lot of differences between the two parties, which people should take into consideration. But when it comes to U.S. foreign policy, as has been said by many guests on our show before, democracy stops at the border. So why do you think the two parties have, you know, this, dating back to the 2000 debate where uh, Jim McNeil was asking George Bush and Al Gore, is there anything you two disagree about when it comes to U.S. foreign policy? Why is foreign policy so bipartisan? That's a good question. I mean, the easy answer would be to, you know, discuss the influence of Israel lobbies, which are very powerful. Uh, APAC, of course, being the, the biggest one. Uh, but yeah, I mean, for a while, you could at least pretend that Israel was the success story of the Middle East. It was never true, but Israel presented a very agreeable face to the West. And the idea of going against our one ally, supposedly one ally in the Middle East, the one, the sole democracy in the Middle East, again, the sole democracy, quote unquote, even though there are other democracies in the Middle East. Um, to go against that would be it would serve you no real purpose if you were trying to get elected. Um, but now it's kind of only exists on inertia. You have to constantly go back to these old talking points, which, as you said, they they're 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 very, very, very outdated if they were ever even true to begin with. Um, they want that uh, approval. They, uh, they want uh, money from these lobbying organizations. They want to continue supporting the military industrial complex. Uh, even though the incoming generation of uh, young voters are more and more pro-Palestine than ever, more and more unsympathetic to the Israeli occupation of Palestine than ever, um, they're not voting as much uh, as previous generations. Uh, they don't have wealth. Uh, they don't have any influence that they're using uh, that could all uh, affect politicians. Um, elected politicians in America have always lived in a different plane of existence uh, than we do. Um, and it's falling apart at the moment. Uh, there are cracks appearing in it. Uh, 
but that world has been built up for a very long time with Israel in particular, but with many other things. And it's going to take a while to, to deconstruct that, but it's a powerful wall. So can we do anything about the bipartisan foreign policy without taking money out of politics, which seems like an impossibility? Are we kind of in the United States, is our democracy doomed because the influence of money in politics that leads to things like a bipartisan foreign policy that we cannot vote out of office? My worry about this, and I know the name of the program, but also I I, I don't like uh, to be a... Uh, do to feel doomed or to talk to speak in a doomed kind of way but this is something that i i fear is only possible to be solved with time um when the generation that has most backed israel as fervently as it as it did um when they eventually leave politics when they when they when they eventually have to stop voting by 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 inertia of time uh, and, and the new generation comes in. Um, that's something that uh, may come around in, in you know five, 10, 15 years. Um, but it, it's I think something that only, only can only be solved for time. Um, the thing to know is that Israel feels this and feels very threatened by it. And that's why it is panicking as much as it is in its propaganda, uh, constantly talking about young people, constantly talking about how they need to reach them, but also loathing them in equal measure. Uh, I don't know if you saw clips of the uh, the Israeli SNL equivalent that they have, um, where they're, they're recurring characters in addition to making fun of starving Palestinians. They also have recurring characters of blue-haired college students who love Hamas and and how much they hate them. Um, they fear the younger generation and they know that their time in the sun in the United States in their good graces is limited. I think that's something to hope for, but the issue is, is that it hasn't come soon enough. And the genocide that is being perpetuated um, feels like I, I think another reporter, Matthew Petty, uh, put it this way, that this is kind of the last cruel gasp of American empire, that before things have to be extracted outward. You know, you break everything, you kill as much as you possibly can, you ruin the society um, as sort of this retribution for being, for, you know, being hated by the population that you're oppressing. Uh, it's not good, but I uh, will put it that way. You know, I've been saying here, though, on the show that, you know, since 1996, that I believe that U.S. conservatism is in its death throes. And a lot of people are like, oh, that's very optimistic. And I'm like, no, this is very pessimistic because U.S. conservatism is in its death throes and it's going to take all of us down with it. Do you think that's the mm. same case when it comes to the U.S. and Israel? 100 percent. Um Will Medeker, uh made this comparison point before I did, but he said that the U.S. and Israel were in sort of a suicide pact, a murder-suicide pact, and we're all party to it by, you know, <laughs> no no agreement of our own. Um, they are going to kill thousands more people 
they're going to annihilate the Palestinian civilization that exists inside the Gaza Strip. Um, they are going to, um, you know, run a, run a battering ram through the American democratic system. Uh, they are going to um, potentially uh, bring back Trump into office so that they can, I guess, have an easier time of uh, annihilating Gaza. Not because Biden will give them the weapons, but because uh, Trump is, I guess, more um, passive uh, in that way. Um, they are, Israel in particular, is on a mission to uh, destroy almost, I I, I, I want to resist using hyperbole, but at least from my vantage point here uh, in Lebanon, where I'm speaking to you from, there's a sense that Israel is on this quest to destroy seemingly the entire region if it doesn't get what it wants. Uh, Southern Lebanon is on the chopping block. Gaza is already uh, within the throes of it. There might be more war in Yemen, Iraq, perhaps. Uh, settler expansionism runs unchecked. The younger generation in Israel is far more conservative than the previous ones. It's like we're staring down the barrel of uh, a worldwide conflict wherein the Western powers are not the ones who are fighting fascism, but are actively enabling it. And there is no power on this earth that can stop them. And that's a very terrifying thing to face and realize that, oh, there's no there's no one coming to stop them that is on their level. You just kind of have to hope that they get tired of, of murder. And that's a very scary thing to have to hope for. So you write that when some Americans hear about such a massive array of strikes on a country that they weren't aware we were bombing before, they tend to seek answers from the television. Most major networks regurgitate State Department lines about Iranian proxy militants and the threat to international trade posed by civilization despising pirates. So not to make, not I mean, not to take agency away from the people like the Houthi or take agency away from Yemenis in any way, but isn't every nation in the region that is currently involved in this conflict, aren't they all to some degree representing outside influences? For instance, the Houthi were fighting Saudi-backed troops within their country in 2014. Is every nation either a proxy for the U.S. or some other nation's interests, or am I looking at this in a way that misleads me into believing something I shouldn't? I mean, I I disagree with the language of, of proxy, just because I think the threshold for being a, a proxy is is much higher than I think a lot of people put it at. Um, to me, a proxy is a nation that starts and stops uh, at the wishes of a, another country. Um, even when it has like very adamant goals that it, that it claims to do. So Israel, I, I, I resist that definition, but I, I considering how many times American presidents have stopped IDF assaults, I understand uh, when people use that language. Katab Hezbollah, when they suddenly announce that they're going to stop targeting uh, the United States after making that their whole thing, 
that is a bit suspect. Um, but in the Houthis case, in with Ansarullah, uh, with the Houthi movement, there is no world in which I can envision in which Iran, even if it gives support to them, um, even if it, it it is allied with them and recognizes their government when other government in the world will, if Iran were to tell them, hey, Abdul Malik al-Houthi, um, you need to stop targeting Israel. You need to stop targeting American ships. We're trying to, to broker something. I don't think the Houthis would agree to that. I don't think their, their foreign policy, you know, the, the sun of that rises and sets on what Tehran wants. Um, they're ideologically aligned, very closely ideologically aligned. But Hezbollah, the Houthis, large organizations like this, they are not uh, wholly subservient to Iran. Um, and I think when it's reduced in that way to talking about proxy conflicts, like, for example, um, I believe uh, Dana Bash, uh, when she was on CNN, you know, the Chiron was like Iran backed militants are hit in Yemen. When you hear that, the idea is that you think of like a, a group that is owned and operated by Iran or like clandestinely owned and operated by Iran uh, appeared out of the ether and is only serving as kind of like an arm of the state. Um, that that does not describe the Houthi movement, its origins, its ideology, its pragmatism. Um, there's more complexity there, uh, which I think is important to establish. In a statement from Khatib uh, Hezbollah, they distanced themselves from Iran, saying, on the contrary, our brothers in the Axis, especially in the Islamic Republic, do not know how we work jihad, and they often object to the pressure and escalation against the American occupation forces in Iraq and Syria. So are groups like Hezbollah, are they actually trying to de-escalate the possibility for this war to become even worse, to expand any more, while the state actors like Israel and the United States, possibly even other countries, are escalating the war? Uh, I think Kadab Hezbollah is trying to de-escalate somewhat, for sure. Um, I mean, this is the first time that U.S. troops have ever been killed since October 7th in any of these attacks, and there have been a ton of them. Uh, they they really um, the number of them really went up after Israel's assault began, um, but yeah, the United States and Israel they talk a lot uh, about how uh, Iran is escalating, Yemen is escalating. All these different all these different factions are 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 the ones who are kind of pulling the rope, as it were, and they're they're dragging America and Israel uh, over the line. Um, but the United States and Israel, they are the ones who hold the cards here. I mean, Israel is the one that, you know, going off of its already extant occupation of Gaza, has chosen to uh, go on a path that seems like it is heading toward, at the very least, a buffer zone and the annihilation of Gazan civil infrastructure. Uh, and at worst, seems to be active settlement, forced expulsion, genocide, annihilation of everything, uh, and then making it Israeli territory. On what planet is that not the primary escalation that threatens everything? 
I, I, it, in the West, in the media, the discussion is, is the idea that Israel is fighting a war against Hamas, that it's doing pinpoint strikes, that it's, that it's trying to, you know, um, dismantle, the, the word that they use a lot is dismantle, they want to dismantle Hamas military infrastructure and all these different things. Um, but that that obscures what the actual reality situation is. When you hear that language on the news, you think that it's absurd that anyone would would be so furious as to blockade the Red Sea, as to launch uh, increasingly brazen attacks on American military bases, uh, to do as Iraqi militias have done to fire missiles and drones over the border over the borders of Syria and Iraq and hit Israel along with the drones and missiles that are already hitting Israel from the south. Like, it's not that they are they are escalating the situation because they feel like they need to get out ahead of America. They're doing it because they feel like the alternative is, uh, again, annihilation. That's a big thing. That's it's it's a it's a, a fascist enterprise a genocide that they're responding to why would you not want to 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 meet it where it is and and fight it as much as you possibly can earlier this week the new york times ran a column by the white house and national security correspondent uh david sanger on the drone attack in jordan that killed three us three u.s service members saying sanger argues that in response the biden administration needs to have what is being called a strong response. Now, this may reveal something to you and our listeners about Sanger, of all the people in the world to speak with about avoiding military escalation with Iran in the Middle East. Sanger chooses James Stavridis, a retired Navy admiral who now works for the Cargyle Group, a global investment firm. In other words, someone whose career spun him through the revolving door of the military investment complex. Stavridis is quoted saying, There are no good choices for President Biden, but the deaths and wounds of so many U.S. troops and SEALs demand a strong response. A multi-day air campaign against all proxies, coupled with a last chance warning to Iran, is warranted. The Pentagon should be creating options that go directly against Iranian weapons production facilities, naval assets, and intelligence systems in case the mullahs want to go another round a strong offensive i know a strong offensive well i'll get to that in a second a strong offensive cyber attack would be another viable option either alone or in conjunction with kinetic strikes so before i ask my question why did the mullahs make you laugh so hard i no, but it's just like the the it's it's a language that feels like it's right out of 1979 but it's been used in perpetuity for as long as I've been alive, for as long as my father has been alive. And it's just, it's very <laughs> reductive. Let's just put it politely that way. Okay, so the multinational corporate world, uh, this, apparently this guy from Cargill is a former admiral. They vote war. Does the necessity of a strong response to the killing of three service members mean the war, <laughs> judging by all of history, will escalate. Can Biden not escalate the war in response to the drone attack in Jordan? Can Biden get reelected by opposing the ceasefire and not responding strongly, as the Cargill Admiral calls it, to the Jordan attack? Wait, okay, just just so that I understand this correctly. Uh, 
so if Biden doesn't respond to this, there's a chance that he won't get reelected. That's that's the that's the charge. That's what I'm trying to go with right here. I just want to see. Okay. It. Yeah, I know it's a hypothetical, I, but I, I don't I don't think that's what's hin- I, I don't think that's what's uh, being hinged on, especially when um, poll after poll again. Voters want the ceasefire to happen. Uh, generally speaking, uh, more war in the Middle East is not very attractive to American voters anymore. Um, people get really like hyped up when the initial attacks happen. Um, when October 7th happened, there was a massive spike in support for Israel uh, against Palestine. Um, but as it dragged on, you know, the trends went the other way. And the idea that if, if it expands and that if it gets worse and we get involved in more fronts, that somehow this will benefit Biden's position, uh, I don't think is, is, is uh, a good move uh, if Biden wants to uh, preserve his campaign, at least in the state that it is. Um, but moreover, in response to this person who works at the Carlyle Group, um, I think the idea that Biden is going to respond with, as this person suggests, I, I guess the, the wiping out Iranian infrastructure on all fronts uh, in, in a way that's never been seen before, I don't think that's going to happen. I think um, what Biden is most likely to do is either one of two things. One is that he's going to strike at the IRGC outside Iran in some very severe way, which is something that Israel has been doing in in, in uh, Syria for a long time. Um, might work differently if America is doing it. Might be more striking. Um, but or the idea of uh, striking something non-Iranian inside Iran uh, in order to projected the idea that it is willing to strike Iranian targets inside Iran if this continues. Um, but either way, I think Biden, as much as he is invested in taking America down with the ship, as it were, alongside Israel, I, I don't think he's going to be invested on the train of, um, uh, as this person just suggests, uh, blowing up Iran and all of its military. <laughs> I'm glad that you don't support that position. We have been speaking with journalists and writer primarily focused on the politics of the Middle East. Seamus, Seamus, I'm getting your first name wrong now. Mel Kefzali, <laughs> who posted the Baffler magazine article, More Fog, More War, The Brutal Logic of the U.S. Attacks on Yemen. Go to his website, support his work by subscribing to his Substack. Follow Seamus on X at Seamus underscore Malik, one last question for you, Seamus, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. And even before I ask you the question from hell, just to, just briefly, has the Biden administration shown any evidence that the Houthi are being armed and controlled by Iran? Uh, armed, I would say that there's evidence to support that, um, but at least... Uh, in the operation that two Navy SEALs died in after they slipped off a ladder, um, the amount of weapons was, was pretty limited. Uh, controlled, I would say not at all. Not, 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 a, not, not at all, but not in any significant way. Okay, so, so our question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your uh, response. And I promise we do this with all of our guests. 
is you write that in the ideal world, Palestine would not exist, as is the stated goal of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and all the Palestinians would leave for different countries, as is also the goal of Prime Minister Netanyahu. There are a, they are a festering sore to him, always demanding rights, always putting themselves at the forefront of the news with their suffering, with their death. The thought of actually having to pay attention to Gaza, especially after this war, makes Israel furious. Why can't these people just go away, leave their homes forever, and let this colonial project proceed? There's the myth that nobody was living where Israel is today when emigration from Europe began. This is the exact same myth we have here in the United States, that the United States was empty when uh, colonists came here. Neither is true. Both are a myth, a myth that many Israel, Israelis uh, tell themselves and want to believe is true. Is Israel trying to make their origin myth reality by erasing the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who were already in the region? Are they trying to eliminate the people who still carry the keys to their homes that were taken by Israel generations ago? Is this all in order to fulfill a myth that is not true? Yes, absolutely. 100%. Um, Liberal Israelis, liberal Zionists can kind of continue to live in this fantasy world that they've created for themselves in which, you know, they can live alongside the Arabs. But in supporting the Gaza war, as an overwhelming number of Israelis do, that still furthers the goals of the Israeli government, which is the expulsion of Palestinians, or at the very least, a very large amount of them from the Gaza Strip. When the Israelis bomb bookstores, when they bomb civil administrations, when they destroy birth certificates, when they destroy death certificates, marriage certificates, when they bomb uh, apartment buildings and they destroy and they they kill entire families in airstrikes. Uh, I mean, during the invasion of Lebanon here, one of the primary goals of the Israeli military when they came into Beirut was that they wanted to go to the Institute of Palestine Studies and wanted to seize the library there because of all of the wealth of information that was contained about Palestinian history within it. The eternal quest of Israel throughout many administrations, ones that were considered more uh, attuned to peace with Palestine, uh, with the Palestinian territories, uh, than this one, certainly, they have all advocated the position of eliminating the Palestinians uh, from the pages of history. There is a common joke book, uh, joke, quote unquote book, that a lot of conservative Israelis like to throw around. It's called, uh, I think I'm paraphrasing here, the history of the Palestinians. And when you open up the book, it's 300 blank pages. And Israeli members of parliament like to wave this book around. They say when when settlers talk about the Arabs in Gaza, I mean just the settlement conference that they had that they held uh, this previous week, they talked about how the Arabs had lost their right to live there because of the October seventh attacks, implying that they were somehow sent in there by other people, perhaps by Egypt, perhaps by Jordan, and therefore, you know, they they have to go. This is Israeli land. There is no depth there's there is no there's no end to this hole that they want to that they want to produce 
when even liberal politicians talk about how if they had a button to press where they could send all the Arabs to Europe, they would press it, but they don't. They want the Palestinians out. They want them erased. They want them to die from disease. They want them to be killed in strikes. They want them to be humiliated. They want them to be massacred to not only send a message to the other Arabs in the region, but also to affirm that there will be nothing else but Israel uh, in the land of historical Palestine. That is their goal. That is not a goal that they like telling to the Americans because they know how it sounds to everyone with the brain. But that is what they tell Israelis at home. That's what they talk about uh, on TV. That's what they talk about all the time amongst themselves because that discourse is permissible. Uh, it's a horrifying thing, but that is what they want to do. Seamus, thank you so much for being on our show. Very hellish answer to a very hellish question. Make sure that you support Seamus's work by subscribing to his Substack at Seamus-Malikavzali.com. M-A-L-E-K-A-F-Z-A-L-I. Follow Seamus on Twitter at Seamus underscore Malik. Thank you so much, and I hope that you forgive me for me butchering your last name. It's all right. <laughs> thank you. I, I tried, though. I tried. <laughs> And I, I've been living in America. I know what it's like. All right. Thank you very much, Seamus. I appreciate it. Uh, you are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. This is hell. And the reason at the end I was bringing up that myth of Israel's origins is because those myths can be so dangerous. The myth of American exceptionalism is driving this country apart. If Seamus gave you a better understanding of the war in Yemen and the role of the Houthi and why none of them is happy with Israel's war in Gaza, and later today or this week or maybe this weekend you share what you learned with a friend, make sure to show your appreciation by first, telling your friend where you learned what you just shared. Second, becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Finally, third, you can tell your friend that they too can show their support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by just visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Becca, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and share with us how our listeners are responding so far on the Welcome to the Hellhole This Is Hell Facebook group page. Right, and on our Facebook group page, the question uh, from listener Jen D is, which mega-rich person would you eat first? And we've got a lot of answers today, so we'll kind of buzz through them. But uh, Terry M says, Jeff B, and then Elon. Okay. And then Adam A says, Zuck. He keeps himself in a decent enough shape, would make a decent meal. I'd throw him a hell of a barbecue, bearing in mind I didn't ask the freaking question. Uh, you don't want me to lean into it, so don't ask. <laughs> I think he already did lean into it. <laughs> yeah, he leaned way in. Uh, then we have Clint B. So musk, slow cooked, and mesquite smoked. Beautiful alliteration. And then our, our very own Jeffrey D. says, Thiel, he's the most organized. Gotta dismember him, toss him in like a salad, and do the fava bean and Chianti routine. Oh, God, it's just yeah. disgusting. And then Dan T. says, all of them. Grind them all oh, into a, a melange of affluent. Uh, cook, up, cook up the ghoulish ghoulish. <laughs> Partake of all of them all at once. Ugh. And then Nick E says, the cook, the feel, his tripe, and his liver. 
That's beautiful. That is kind uh, of beautiful, yeah. but still, I'm very disturbed by this whole situation. Oh, we, oh yeah, your, your, your listeners really jumped on this one. <laughs> uh, uh, Laddie S.O. Uh, says, uh, Bernard Arno, or Arno, uh, switch, stitched up into a Louis Vuitton Marceau chain and handbag, just like his, uh, just like Haggis. Okay. <laughs> and then Pete V. says, Carlos Slim on a tortilla. Oh. <laughs> Jennifer S. says, Bill Ackman cooked up with a side of his wife using a recipe found on Wikipedia. Oh, wow, what's that, that mean? Is, that is I mean, me- Bill Ackman deserves it, but go ahead. <laughs> and then Allison H. says, uh, Makesh Abani, if I eat him, I acquire his resources. That's Is that accurate? <laughs> yes, it is. That's exactly how that works. <laughs> and uh, Ronaldo says, I don't eat meat, especially not human meat. Yuck. But cats must eat meat to survive, so ask Mel uh, who he would like. <laughs> Oh, that's that's very thoughtful. Very thoughtful. <laughs> and Julie M says they all look disgusting. I'll go on a diet, but I will gladly feed on e- Elon to my pet crocodile, Alphonse. Wow, <laughs> I didn't know she had a pet crocodile. Well, she yeah, <laughs> she's feeding him well. Yes. Uh, Kobe S says I'm lacto ova vegetarian, but would bend the rules for Zuckerberg because he's young and probably has some tender parts too. <laughs> that's like Gross. eating white asparagus. Uh, Kobe S says, BTW, this is a great question from hell. The responses are so revealing and involved. Uh, Lisa B says, I'd feed him to all to Mel, which is a great answer. Great answer again. And Caveat says, Goldman snacks. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. That's a very good one. So, as always, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can leave your answer at our Facebook uh, group page. Again, welcome to the hellhole. We just went through all the answers, but you can still leave your answer there. You can post it in our Discord community or on X at This Is Hell Radio, or, you, or if you are a subscriber, you can post it at the Patreon page. We've gone through a lot of the Patreon answers already, but you can still leave your answer at the Patreon page, patreon.com slash thisishell. Coming up, Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth, and we'll tell you who our final guest of the week will be, as well as what Dr. Seb Vupper is doing this week during the uh, Past Inside the Present, when Seb, a historian by trade, gives us the historical context of the past so we can have a better understanding of our present. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked were written while I was really high. This is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. Irrationalizing. A word to those still supporting Israel's attacks on Gaza. The whole world is not anti-Semitic just because they're against the continued massacre of the population of Gaza. The same way the whole world wasn't anti-Christian just because they were against the USA massacring the population of Indochina. At this point, after killing some 26,000 Gazans, the vast majority of them civilians, including many thousands of children, and displacing or making orphans of just shy of 2 million of them, and continuing the destruction of life, habitations, and resources, and now officially spreading it to the West Bank, it approaches impossible for anyone with a mind capable of rational understanding to consider this tolerable. 
hey, yeah, some might not consider it genocide for one reason or another, yet still understand it's too much. But for people to have rationalized it as fine, appropriate, awful, but necessary, or just peachy means they have found the mysterious missing key to irrational rationalization. In light of the current circumstance, rationalizing is not an appropriate label. Irrationalizing is what it is. Waiting for the drones. I don't think people are really awake anymore. I had to take many people to task on Facebook over the weekend, and not for the genocide currently in progress in Gaza, Everything is out of kilter. One couple had gone to Detroit from the suburbs because the Lions were playing what turned out to be their last game of the season, but clinging at the time to the belief they might go to the Super Bowl, the city was festive. And this couple was smiling amidst it all like, waiting for the drones. You know, instead of fireworks, we now have aerial robots doing synchronized ballet. But I found the phrase tone-deaf, waiting for the drones, sounds like a phrase used by people waiting to be attacked by missiles or bombs sent by Obama or presidents after him. People waiting for the drones are waiting to die. But whatever makes you jolly. Then, none other than journalist Jim Norikis was infatuated with the idea that Amelia Earhart looked like David Bowie when she looked much more like Michael Sarazen in They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Because he has lips. Bowie had no lips. Bowie's mouth was famously just a slit in his facial skin mask. Then, someone opined that Francis Scott Key wrote The Star-Spangled Banner in prison. American Francis Scott Key was held for one day on an American ship, the ship itself under guard, during the 25-hour British siege of Fort McHenry, while negotiating a prisoner release. He was there as an attorney, not a prisoner, and he didn't do the bulk of writing the lyrics till the next day when he was in a hotel. Then... None other than Detroit-born playwright Idris Goodwin entertained a discussion on his page about the barely listenable country cover of Tracy Chapman's song, Fast Car, in which there was much said that I disagreed with. At one point, I had to resort to quoting the famous line from Zoolander, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. But I did find out from that discussion that Luke Combs, the perpetrator of the cover, was kind of progressive in his general attitudes toward cultural symbols, particularly the Confederate flag. Just about everyone on there had irrational things to say, including me. All right, maybe especially me. So, you see, it's a new pandemic, irrationalization. Meanwhile, very rational atheists are still asserting that religion is the cause of the Israel-Palestine conflict. Talk about crazy pills. What it's about is hurt, dispossessed people hurting other dispossessed people. If one tribe of Richard Dawkins's favored different shirts from those favored by another tribe of Richard Dawkins, or forget about the shirts. If two groups of Dawkinses wanted the same piece of land and historically each held pretty much equally reasonable claim to it, they could still rationalize war between each other. Religion doesn't have to exist for the conflict to exist. Religion is just the shirts they wear. Israelis and Palestinians don't disagree on points of religious doctrine. 
They disagree about rights. They disagree about borders and movement. They disagree about historical claims and historical wrongs. And they disagree on that ultimate source of irrationality, truth. Because even if arrived at empirically or inductively, truth is not portable from its location of origin. It doesn't travel well from one person to another. And even when it can be transported long distances, it doesn't persist. The last person at the end of the Chinese telephone game is left holding a disagreeably overthought and mildewed Salisbury steak. It's not the solid thing someone had hoped to preserve. I realize it's bad for the branding of a radio show segment calling itself the moment of truth to question the epistemological stability of its ostensible raison d'etre or reason for existing, but there you have it. The reason is irrational. But back to the mystery that many, many people solemnly remembering the Holocaust can look at the killing of going on 30,000 people as necessary. Didn't the phrase, it became necessary to destroy the village in order to save it, ring lethally insane to civilized people at one time? Specifically to the people I considered myself to have an unspoken, or often even spoken, understanding about the cruelty of the U.S. war against Vietnam. Did not the exhortation to never forget the Holocaust resonate with anything other than the historic pain of those wearing a particular style of Dawkins shirt? This is where I am marooned. No wonder we're called the left. People make grand pronouncements about rights and compassion and equality and other noble principles, but in the end, they leave those behind to pursue something entirely different. And I'm not saying the left is always right. There are many people calling for an end to war and occupation whose rationalizations for action I don't respect. But I don't care if by careful observation and learning, I happen to come to a similar conclusion as a large group of fools, just as those adhering to the violent strategy might understand that their leaders are awful and self-interested, but nevertheless tolerate the errant followers of those leaders who happened to land on the same side of history with them. Once you're trying to justify continued attacks on people of whom you've already killed 26,000 yet failed to achieve any of what you claim are your goals, you are either lying about your goals to the world or to yourself, or both. And when we do violence based on lies to ourselves, we are left with nothing in our possession but spoiled Salisbury steak. Spoiled Salisbury steak all over our Dawkins jerseys. This has been the moment of truth. Good day! I just learned recently that uh, camel meat tastes a lot like uh, Salisbury steak. Hamburger. Salisbury steak. Salisbury steak. I had some at... at uh, you know, at the bar last time I was in town. Oh. Camel burgers, oh. yeah. Oh, well, yay, we're going to start again. Yes, don't see another one. Hello, uh, sorry about that. That's right. <laughs> All right, Jeffy. Hold on, hold on. I got to tell you one thing. What's that? I just got to warn Seb. I know a lot about the protocols of the elders of Zion. I know you do. Play about it. I know you did. Is there any video of that play that you could send him? He would love to watch that play. Uh, no, but I can send him the script. Yeah, send it to him. I bet he'd love it. Um, yeah, well, if he did. What was the name? It, what was, I, tell people what the name of the play was. Strauss at Midnight. It was really fantastic. I really the Strauss was Leo Strauss. Yes. All right, Jeffy, until next time. What? Stay what do you mean? Stay beautiful. I can't. I know. <laughs> Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, the Ojibwe, 
the Ottawa, the Miami, the Ho-Chunk, the Menominee, and Sac and Fox Peoples. This is Hell. Becca, please remind us, what is this week's question from Hell for the listening audience? This week's question from Hell is from listener Jen D. Which mega-rich person would you eat first? Uh, we will share the rest of your answers to this week's question from Hell on tomorrow's show and name a winner following Seb Vooper and the past inside the present. Becca, what is Seb talking about this week? All right. Seb looks at the history of one of the world's truly most hellish texts of the recent centuries, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. I am so glad that's never been turned into a movie. And if it has been turned into a movie, please do not tell me. Uh, Becca, who do we have scheduled to be our final guest this week? All right, our final guest this week will be Dr. Maha Hilal, who wrote the Tom Dispatch piece, Israel, the United States, and the Rhetoric of the War on Terror, from September 11th, 2001 to October 7th, 2023, and beyond. Maha is founding executive director of the Muslim Counterpublics Lab and author of Innocent Until Proven Muslim. We hope to see you throughout January for This Is Hell Office Hour our meet and greet that's really a drink and think no matter the weather office hours are held every wednesday beginning at 6 p.m at carrie's lounge 2251 west devon avenue in chicago's west ridge neighborhood the bar downstairs from where i'm sitting right now the show you are currently listening to streams live on wednesday which means this evening is office hours and the current weather forecast is that tonight it will be even warmer than last week about five degrees warmer with temps reaching into the mid 40s now so definitely look for me out back in the beer garden around the fire pit that's this is hell office hours which happen every wednesday beginning at six inside the warm and friendly confines of carrie's lounge 2251 west devon avenue in chicago's westridge neighborhood it's our meet and greet that's really a drinking thing I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Becca Reidenauer for producing live from the waking nightmare that profits from misery. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.